Since 9-11, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation has been committed to improving the lives of America's veterans, first responders, and their families. For over 20 years, the foundation has helped America keep its solemn promise to never forget. Tunnel to Towers provides mortgage-free homes to Gold Star families and the families of fallen first responders with young children and builds specially adapted smart homes for catastrophically injured veterans, as well as work to eradicate veteran homelessness. David Marshall served in the Army during World War II and fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He's never forgotten the sacrifices of his comrades in arms, nor the efforts of first responders on 9-11 and in the days and months that followed. He is a loyal and proud Foundation donor. Tunnel to Towers is committed to supporting veterans, first responders, and their families, and so many of them need your help. Join the Foundation on its mission to do good and never forget. Donate $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's T2T.org. Clam comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's do an around the world foreign policy buck brief here with our friend Bridge Colby. He's a former Pentagon official. He's got an awesome book on foreign policy strategy of denial. Um, You should check it out. Bridge, great to have you back on the program. Um, let, let's start with this for a second, because, you know, we're we're speaking at a time when the world is still reeling from the terrorist attack in Israel by Hamas. Iran's fingerprints are all over this. We know that. What does Iran think it can achieve with the actions that it engages in? Is it just ideologically driven sadism and and hatred or is there a long game here that they think they're playing by supporting these? militant groups that is in some way achievable as a nation state yeah well great to be back uh, back with you buck always a, a pleasure to be with you and uh even on this uh, really difficult day or time um I, look i think there is plenty of rage and ideology in the islamic Re- republic the regime there but i also think they appear to be pursuing a strategy and i think that's my sense of the israeli assessment as well uh, it's based on, you know, the exploitation of terrorism and human suffering and so forth. But it is um, it is a strategy. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what they're going. I mean, it's too clear that Iran benefits 
from this to say that they've had no role. Obviously, they've been heavily complicit in arming Hamas and Hezbollah and so forth. But they also benefit from interrupting the Israeli normalization with the Saudis and others in the region. Um, and the, the, the quiet that, I mean, I was in Israel in June and, you know, there was a sense that, that things were pretty much probably more secure in Israel than they've ever been, that the kind of West Bank and Gaza were, were under control. And I think what I assume Hamas is trying to do and, and backed by Iran is to reintroduce fear and uh, uncertainty and anxiety into an Israeli life. Uh, obviously, they're taking hostages and they're trying to probably establish more control over the Arab population in both Gaza, where they have been ascendant, but also in the West Bank, and use that to to just over time erode uh, life in the Jewish state and ultimately try to, you know, I think their ultimate goal is, is as they say, to recapture that, that territory. Do you think that they just view this as a incremental approach to the eventual eradication of Israel? I mean, that really is their strategic goal. That's not just bluster and, and chest thumping from a bunch of psychopaths. I, I mean, I think they say it consistently. And, you know, the people who were prepared to conduct acts of terrorism like liners in the 1970s, but were more secular or maybe had more incremental objectives, even even then they might have been more aggressive or ambitious. I think those people seem to have been pushed aside. And Hamas and Hezbollah were the radical groups and the Islamic revolutionaries in Iran. And you don't look, I mean, obviously these analogies are always kind of limited, but how long did the, the, the Crusaders stay or how long did very the British stay? You know, you look how long colonial, anti-colonial rebellions that they're probably modeling themselves, not to suggest that Israel is in any way a colonial state. But but I think that's probably the model they have. In, you know, that as Ho Chi Minh said, you know, we have time and you can kill 10 of ours for every one we kill of you. But in the long run, we'll, we'll outlast you. Yeah, I mean, I, I know they take this this uh, very long view at the expense of of the present that's a common theme in a lot of middle eastern states unfortunately that you know like the the some um you know some uh, amazing future will come about if they're willing to engage in you know heinous acts today and and justify a lot of uh tyranny repression and and things that generally you would want to avoid um, right. but i i'm just wondering at this stage if is it possible for Israel to allow a thing called Hamas to continue to exist? Well, I think they've said, I think Prime Minister Netanyahu did say that they are going to destroy Hamas. I mean, I think the, 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 that makes a ton of sense. Uh, and I mean, I totally support Israel's uh, uh, you know, uh, basis and desire to, to retaliate and restore that deterrence. There's also an element, of course, of justice. But from a strategic point of view, they have to be able to say that if you do these, I mean, barbaric acts, some of which in some sense are unprecedented since the Holocaust, I mean, really horrible stuff. Uh, that there will be punishment way out of proportion to, you know, the, the benefits for the attacking actor. The problem, of course, is what does it mean to destroy Hamas? And I assume the Israelis are wrestling with that. So I think they'll probably need to come up with a definition of that that is, you know, significant enough that it means something, but also attainable uh, at a reasonable cost. Because, you know, I mean, I think they're mobilizing 300,000 Israelis, huge impact on the Israeli economy, on Israeli society. It is a free society. It's a, you know, it, it has a democratic politics, of course, much to its credit. So I think that's going to be a, a big part of the challenge. And unfortunately, this is, I assume, part of what Hamas and presumably Iran and Hezbollah in the background are trying to exploit. Uh, we'll come into a discussion of Ukraine here in a second. And, and there's actually some people that are already pointing out how some of the munitions uh, shortages that we may need to help 
out with uh, how the Ukrainian situation exacerbates what we might need to do in the Middle East. We'll get into this in a second. Look, the MyPillow 2.0 is amazing. The MyPillow 1.0 built uh, Mike Lindell's incredible company. It's a product that the whole thing was built around. But the 2.0 is even better, the newest version. The 2.0 has the patented adjustable fill of the original MyPillow, but now has fabric that is made with temperature-regulating thread. The MyPillow 2.0 is the softest, smoothest, and coolest pillow you'll ever own. You'll find yourself not waking up in the middle of the night just to turn the pillow over looking for a cool spot to lay your head. And the pricing is great, too. A queen-size MyPillow 2.0 is less than 40 bucks, just $39.99 when you use my name, Buck, as the promo code. A king-size pillow is just $10 more. The pillow comes with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the Radio Listener Special Square, get the queen-size MyPillow 2.0 for $39.99 and the king-size for $10 more. Enter promo code Buck to get your MyPillow 2.0 now. Um, so... Ukraine, Russia, uh, Bridge, the uh, so far the analysis this year is a lot of uh, fighting and basically no territorial movement, as in the whole breakthrough that we were told was going to happen was there was no breakthrough. It looks to be a straight up stalemate. And we're funding this as well as providing a lot of munitions. Um, what's your take on on where the Ukraine situation is going and, and how it's affecting U.S. foreign policy priorities in general right now? Well, look, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's an attritional conflict. I think the New York Times itself reported that that very little territory has changed hands this year. And in fact, Russia has, has seized more territory than than Ukraine. So, um, you know, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, there may still be stamina left in it, but I don't think it's going to radically upend the war. I think what we're seeing is a war of attrition. And it's encouraging that we and the Europeans have made some moves to take our defense industrial base. But the thing to bear in mind is that's all relative, Buck. And this is a really important point that a lot of the kind of more traditional, if you will, neoconservative voices in in the Republican Party underestimate is that that's the Russians are also uh, mobilizing for a long war. And, and the Wall Street Journal was reporting on Saturday that they're retooling their entire economy for a war economy. So, you know, they're going to buy fewer Mercedes and Saabs or whatever, and they're going to eat it, frankly. They're gonna, their lives are not going to be as sort of luxurious as they might have been uh, in places like St. Petersburg and Moscow, probably. But they're going to allocate more of their money and resources as a nation to the military. And we'll see how that nets out relatively. But I think you know, the, a long war is a very difficult um, conflict for us. I think this is unfortunately what the Kremlin is anticipating. They're also getting help from the North Koreans. People laugh about the North Koreans, but look, one thing they're good at is building missiles and rockets and, and artillery shells. They have like a million people working in artillery factories and a- ammunition factories. We can't even produce 155 millimeter munitions. At the, we are producing more of it, but at, which the Israelis also need. But at the level, not the level that the Ukrainians actually want to be able to expend it at. So this is the, this is the real problem. What we should be doing is getting the Euro- Europeans to, to really step up, which they're particularly the Germans are not doing. I think the fact that there's a war breaking out with our very close ally, Israel, and I mean, their actual sovereign territory is being, is, is being invaded and so forth. This just shows us that we can't keep bluffing through. I see a lot of the voices, you know, of the sort of George W. Bush approach saying, hey, we got to be active everywhere. And they're completely sort of blithely ignoring the fact that we're not in a position. We should have been, we should have spent some of that COVID money that we blew on resuscitating our defense industrial base, on being able to bring Amer- good jobs back to the United States that could you know, skilled welders, fix submarines, build munitions, but we didn't do that. And we've barely, t- we've barely touched the problem in the last year. I mean, I've been calling for a national mobilization for the last year because we've been digging ourselves this hole. 
But that's not where we are. And the president, I just saw him, he was, he was talking on, you know, in, in the White House and he was very moralistic and on his high horse. And I was like, who are you yelling at, man? Like, you're the one who could have said, let's actually get a defense industrial base that, by the way, would meet a lot of the kind of concerns that you know, those of us on the new right want, which brings good industrial jobs back to this country. But instead, it's a lot of the green stuff and the climate and all this kind of stuff. And they don't want to uh, do more on the on the defense side. So I think we're in really bad shape. And I actually, I, I wrote a piece the other day in, in The Spectator saying that we're in really bad shape. And I actually underestimated the situation because I didn't think about this possibility of Hamas and, and Israel. But the Chinese, the, the threat has not dissipated in the slightest. It's probably intensifying, if anything. So where do you think all this goes? I mean, Bridge, I, I was on radio when Russia invaded Ukraine uh, in, initially. And there was that moment when they were making that, that move toward Kiev. And then everyone was saying, oh, they've turned them around and now. And I just said, look, guys, this thing's not going to end anytime soon, and it's going to end up costing the U.S. When yep. all said and done, we're going to spend a trillion dollars on this war, which sounded people were just like, come on, that's insane. And now I'm starting to, well, it's like 200 billion and counting right now. Where do you think it's going? I mean, I think you're 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 certainly more right than those who were dismissing it and hoping the war would just end quickly and, and decisively. I mean, I don't think Russia's going anywhere as a great power and who, you know, they care a lot about Ukraine. Unfortunately, they're they're. Their desire, their Putin's lust to take over Ukraine or establish a dominant position is not just, but unfortunately, it's enduring, just like North Korea's is via South Korea. I mean, I was struck. Um, the administration's been pointing out that we've given 150 billion dollars to the Israelis or granted an aid over the last, I don't know, 50, 50 plus years. I mean, we've given almost as much to Ukraine over the last year, you know, kind of year and a half. So this is a huge amount of money, um, and that's and that's I don't think going anywhere. Um, so I think we're in. I mean, where is this all going to go? I, Look, we don't know what they're thinking in Tehran and Moscow, We can Beijing. We can glean, we can infer, but I think the most compelling way of looking at it is to kind of fit the dots on the line. Putin didn't condemn uh, the Hamas attack, and the, and the rhetoric out of Moscow is to say, well, this is the price you pay. This is how the, you know, this is where we're going to pull the Americans away. And of course, the Iranians have been helping the Russians with the drones that they've been using on the front. So the Russians owe the Iranians. And meantime, the Iranians benefit from Hamas taking this action that splits apart the Saudis and the Israelis. And who benefits the most? The Chinese, because it stretches the Americans out. And there are people who are acting as if we have no constraints, that there is no scarcity. And that's just not that's just not serious. And I mean, the American people are already fed up with the forever wars and they've spent a lot of money. And unfortunately, I think we are going to need to have to spend more money on defense industrial base, not so we get into other wars, but so we can help our allies that like Israel that want to be able to defend themselves, be able to do so. But that's not where we are right now. And so, you know, we're in really grim shape. I wish the president would have gotten on national television and say, look, people, this is the biggest problem. This is an opportunity to regrow our industrial base. That's not what he did. Interesting. You know, the notion of regrowing the industrial base, but also the uh, revulsion that it seems certainly the Republican base, and I would assume a lot of Democrats have as well, for the military industrial complex, Raytheon, Bo, um, you know, yeah. uh, Boeing. How do you how do you square that? Like, is there a way to sell revitalizing industry, basically the munitions industry, so we have real war fighting capability and also the ability to support our allies without sounding like being a show for Raytheon? You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I'm acutely sensitive to this. You know. Partially just instrumentally being a defense guy, I always I think a lot of people like they hear defense and foreign policy people talking about increasing the defense budget and they just tune it out. I mean, I was at a Hill thing 
with a bunch of Republican congressmen a few years ago, and they had a bunch of more of the defense hawks came in. And I overheard one of the other kind of normal Republican congressmen say, oh, the defense hawks are back, you know, and they just, dis- right. they just discount it. So I mean, I'm sensitive to that instrumentally, but also substantively, I think there's a reason. I mean, we spend almost a trillion dollars a year and what do we, we have munition scarcity. I mean, really? So obviously the system is broken. There's five defense primes. In the 1980s, we had um, 30 defense primes. We had even more earlier. So to me, this is an opportunity for the kind of industrial policy, the new thinking that you get out of places like American Compass, American Affairs, et cetera. On the left, people like Ro Khanna and Matt Stoller that you could get a bipartisan coalition that says, look, we're going to re, we understand this is going to take government intervention. We're not just going to fill. I mean, Greg Hayes, the CEO of Raytheon was saying that they couldn't decouple from China. I mean, why would we stuff the pockets of people like that who are, you know, basically accountable to their shareholders and are not going to be thinking about what's necessarily in the country's best? And I'm not saying he's a bad guy, but I'm saying like, that's not, we, and a lot of, I think the traditional Republicans say, oh, let's just double defense spending. And people are thinking to themselves, um, yeah, really? Like, that's not it. So, so I, but I do think, and I think it meets a number of different political objectives and, and, and interests. I mean, one of them is what I'm talking about, having more weapons. A, so we're ready. And so we have peace through strength, to use the cliche, but it's kind of true. B, we can give weapons to countries like Israel, more to Ukraine, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, so they can fight. Those who are ready to fight, we can help them do that. But at the same time, bring back good, hard-paying job, uh, good, you know, hard-working, good-paying jobs back to this country. We don't like, we don't have enough welders for our submarine force. We're just going to need to create them. And those are good jobs. And then there'll be white-collar jobs and blue-collar jobs and what have you. I think that's the way that we talk about it. But it's very important. I think you're absolutely right, Buck. It's very important that this not be seen and not actually be just a gift to the established players who are just going to keep doing what they're doing. Yes, because it certainly seems like, uh, the big defense contractors, people have had their have had their fill of uh, the run up in costs that incur all the time, and somehow the lack of of sustained large scale war fighting capability that we have at the same time, right? Like, yeah. you know, we're we're getting right. really fancy planes, but do we have enough artillery shells? I mean, th- these are important things to uh, to well, figure out. We can't out. fix ships like basic things. And so it's like, we're spending, people say, oh, we're not spending enough on defense. We're like spending a trillion dollars. Shouldn't we get a better output? You would think so. I want to talk China with you in a second here. But first up, some people in the know are speculating on a coming change to our currency system. According to one of them, a former Wall Street insider and digital currency expert, our federal government could soon announce this change. In this scenario, our paper currency could be replaced with something much more trackable, a digital currency. This expert, a guy by the name of Tika Tawari, is warning that the official announcement could come within months. He's exposing this government plan in an online video and showing you the three steps you need to take to prepare. Go to DollarRecall.com to watch this video. You'll learn more about this plan and how to opt out if you decide to do so. Go to DollarRecall.com. Learn how to prepare before it's too late. Your savings, your hard-earned cash could really depend on this. One more time, DollarRecall.com, paid for by Palm Beach Research Group. Um, all right, Bridge. So China's watching all this stuff going on, Russia-Ukraine war, Israel-Hamas war. How are they sitting on the sidelines and positioning themselves and benefiting and strategizing? Well, again, I mean, I, I don't know what's going through Xi Jinping's head, but I'm looking at them and I'm saying they're doing a, a pretty much everything consistent with actually preparing for war for the, with the United States. They're training their conventional forces. They're building them up. They're building them up in a way that assumes they've solved the Taiwan problem. They're building up their nuclear forces. They're sanction, trying to sanction-proof their economy. 
They're conditional conditioning the Chinese people for suffering. I mean, Xi Jinping is saying, get used to it. There's going to be rocky waters. Okay, that's happening. Okay, if you're China, then if you think about it kind of inferentially or deductively, you say, what would be the best situation if you're going to attack Taiwan, if you're going to take on the Americans? That's like a cosmic roll of the dice. And what's the lesson of Putin? Putin has given a masterclass on what not to do if you're an aggressor. You know, don't attack in 2014 and then wait eight years. Don't assume the other guy's going to fall apart. Don't take for granted that the Western allies are not are, are going to be disunified, et cetera. Okay, if you're Xi Jinping and you take that, I mean, it's pretty commonsensical. Then you basically, I think you benefit from trying to stretch the Americans as much as possible. So actually, from China's point of view, I think the current situation in Europe is actually optimal. Like they don't even necessarily want a total Russian victory because now that Russia is totally dependent on them and it's tying down the Americans. And by the way, the Europeans as well. Oh, and then there's a, a major war that breaks out in the Middle East and the United States might get involved in that and its, and its attention is directed towards that. Well, you, you stretch the Americans, you stretch, you stretch, you stretch, and that gives you a, you know the best opening possible. I'm not saying they're going to do it tomorrow, but I am saying I think there's a very, very real risk in the coming years. And China's behavior suggests a country that's, you know, oh, and, and they're, they're not going to pay any cost. They, they don't have to. They're saying, oh, we'd like to help both parties in Europe and also in the Middle East. So everybody's kind of trying to curry favor with the Chinese so that they're, they're not going to back us up if a war does happen in the Pacific. What is the relationship like right now with China and Russia specifically? I mean, I think it's the closest it's been since the 1950s, in some ways, perhaps even closer at the leader level. I mean, they have deep, deep engagement. I mean, the Russians are clearly the junior partner, but I don't think they certainly Putin th thinks he has an alternative. And so what are the Chinese doing? They're basically they are getting, you know, secure natural resources, energy supplies, possibly food and other things from Russia. And by the way, the Russian military industry could potentially help them out. And what are they doing in return? Well, they're not providing weapons, but Russia's good at producing weapons and can get it from Iran and North Korea. They're propping up the Russian economy by, you know, basically with money, which is by far the most important thing. So they don't tick off the Europeans and the Americans enough to cross their threshold, but they achieve the goal anyway. So I think it's a, and then I think to myself, okay, well, if we think back to that stretching the United States problem, well, China's really bailed Russia out. I mean, Russia needs China. If, if China weren't around, Russia would be up a creek probably without a paddle. Um, if you're in that situation, you're in a long war with the West and there's no way there's going to be a, um, a, 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 there's not unlikely to be a deal and that Putin's going to cut a deal. And by the way, I don't think the Chinese would necessarily agree to back him in making a deal. Well, then, you know, maybe you get payback. I think there's a very real possibility that the Chinese decide to go. If I were Xi Jinping, what would I do? I would say, hey, Putin, I really bailed you out. Now it's your turn to help me out. I want you to do X, Y, Z. doesn't mean they're going to invade Germany or something, although anything's possible. But it's it does mean, hey, I'm going to make things even worse in Europe to distract and tie down the Americans. Let's talk about the uh, Chinese economy here in just a second. But first up, you know, you can see if you're watching this, and you should be because you should be subscribed to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash And I've kind of let it go here with a beard. And I'm not bearded these days, but I just have been lazy for a few days. But you know what I'm going to do? Use my one blade razor. The one blade shave, my friends, gives you a clean, comfortable shave, leaving your face feeling great. Those big razor companies have been lying to you for decades saying that more blades is better. You need four blades, eight blades, ten, whatever. It's crazy. No, no, just one high-quality blade held by a razor that's actually engineered properly and that is worthy of your face. One blade's handle is metal, not plastic. It's weighty and substantial. 
Look, one blade refill plan means you'll get blades sent straight to your door whenever you need them, and you'll get a discount on your blades with your sign up. All orders have a 60 day return policy, whether you use your blades or none, all of your blades or none of your blades. Elevate your shave experience. Get 20% off. Go online to onebladeshave.com slash buck. That's one spelled out O N E, onebladeshave.com slash buck to get 20% off your first order. Bridge is a, is a very clean, he's always been a very clean, I've never seen Bridge with a no, beard. No, I had, I, had I, had I had a beard for one year. Oh, okay. I mean, I've known bit. Bridge like, I mean, I met Bridge for the first time like Whatever 20 years ago. Yeah. And and uh, I've never seen him with a beard before, so I got to send him a, a one blade. Um, but bef- <laughs> before we uh, before we let you go, um, you see this stuff about, about, what is it, Evergrande and China and, you know, the economy there. Is there a chance, there are some folks out there including one or two who are friends of mine who are always like, the Chinese economy is about to implode and it doesn't really happen, but it could. What do you see going on with uh, China yeah. economically? Because that's obviously going to play a big role in all of this. Well, as, from a strategic point of view, from a national interest point of view, I think we have to bet on the, you know, we have to bet. We can't, we can't bet on winning the lottery. So maybe it'll fall apart, but it, it seems pretty unlikely. And I think we need to prepare for the downside risk. So to me, that kind of settles it. Um, and more and more to the point, I think, you know, the, the best analysis I'm seeing is that the Chinese are running into structural headwinds that date back for decades. Um, you know, Xi Jinping's own economic moves may be slowing the economy as well. But I mean, like we see with the Huawei phone and other things going on, unfortunately, I think they are continuing to, you know, grow and make significant progress. I, th- I think, you know, the best assessment, you know, is that there is probably going to be a significant slowdown in the Chinese economy from like, say, the 7% world, but probably in the realm of like 2 to 3% real growth. 2 to 3% growth, it's a lot lower than it used to be. It's pretty high by OECD standards. I mean, the German economy is going to contract this year. Our economy, I'm clear, other economies like the British economy, I believe, have had, had tough times. So 2 to 3%, it's all relative. And, you know, the other thing I say, there's a huge number of people in China, especially including people who have not yet reached like high levels of economic development. There's still large levels of catch up growth available to China. So I think the prudent assessment is that they're going to continue to grow, even if at a slower rate. Now, I was I mean, I was going to end with that, but actually, I want to ask you something just out of my own curiosity. You know, your assessment of this, you talked about China, how it might be preparing for war with the U.S. uh, And you see some of those. Uh, some of those movements and some of that underway at its at its core uh, is the Chinese regime, the Chinese Communist Party of today with Xi Jinping as its dictator, effectively. Is it just an oppositional regime to the liberal world order or is it uh, a hostile and existential threat regime to the world order? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, look, I mean, I think. Part of the, what makes this situation so dangerous is that, is that I don't think China's totally irrational for thinking about going to war. In fact, in some ways, it is quite rational. And, and a lot of this has to do, ultimately, what this is about is economics and growth and commerce and prosperity and so forth. And I think what China appears to want is what I think of as like a secure, large economic sphere, where they have a lot of scale and they could orient the world's economy, particularly Asia's economy, around them and then use that leverage to command the world economy. Why would they want to do that? Because it's awesome. Because you can, mm. lo- you get to live better because you get to boss everybody else around. And that's not, I don't think they're like, I don't, you know, Xi Jinping, he's not, not a great human being, I don't think, to say the least. But he's not Mao Zedong. He's not, he's not Pol Pot. I, I actually think if we were facing a non-communist Chinese regime or government, we might face very similar problems. 
And that's what the sort of like the tragedy of great power politics is. The problem is if China achieves that goal, and they appear to believe that we are trying to strangle them with our economic sanctions, that's part of the problem. A little bit like what happened with Japan in 1941. They were the bad guys, but we kind of put them in a corner with our oil and uh, sanctions uh, in 1941, mm. but without the military strength to deter them. I think if China succeeds in that respect, because people rightly are saying, well, what, you know, Taiwan doesn't appear to care a lot about its defense. Why should we care? It's half a world away. Problem is, Asia is the world's the center of the world economy, and if China dominates that, we're all going to be working for them, basically, and that means in their system, we're going to be working basically for Xi Jinping, and that's why Taiwan and the First Island Chain are so important. And unfortunately, that's all kind of theoretical. But then I look at the data points that we see, and they're consistent with what I'm saying. That's what really scares me. Bridge Colby, everybody, a strategy of denial is his book. You should pick it up. And uh, Bridge. Always insightful and uh, appreciate your expertise, my friend. Good to see you. Thanks, Bob. Good to see you, too. Born on America's darkest day of 9-11, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation has been helping America's heroes ever since. When a first responder or military service member doesn't come home and young children are left behind, Tunnel to Towers pays the mortgage on the family home to lift the financial burden. For severely injured veterans and first responders, Tunnel to Towers builds mortgage-free smart homes, enabling severely injured heroes to move around their homes more independently. Through the Foundation's Homeless Veteran Program, Tunnel to Towers is providing housing and services to homeless veterans. More than 3,300 were helped last year alone. Because all veterans who honorably served, whether in peacetime or war, deserve our nation's gratitude. People who put their lives on the line for our country and our communities need your help now more than ever. Join Tunnel to Towers on its mission to do good and never forget 9-11 or the sacrifices of this country's heroes. Donate $11 a month at T2T.org. That's T, the number two, T.org. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on, but we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.